0: for a second week the stuff we don't talk about on air clinton griffiths hey there i can't believe (laughs) oh well first of all just to be back is nice yeah they haven't stopped us yet (laughs) well it's
1: kind of nice once in a while when you just throw something at the wall and just see if it sticks yeah and we're going to talk
0: about that here in just a (laughs) second this is the stuff we don't talk about on air it's the stuff that happened during covering the news that just kind of popped up and oh wait There it is. I love that little bit there. (laughs) So, no, Clinton, before we get into today's content, we do need to tell a little bit of the story about how this came about because... Just a a little little background. Yeah, truth be told, we didn't tell anybody about this before we started recording this podcast. No, I know. Well,
1: we sit around a lot of times and there's always a backstory, right? So every news... um, event that we cover, there is usually some sort of backstory, either how we heard about it, how it came about, where the information came from, or even more to the story that we could 't put in said article or on TV or on radio because it's just too much and so
0: or just general goofiness like last right. week the story we told about the u-haul
1: yes uh, the, the only going
0: across Nebraska
1: yeah we're out there covering the floods in Nebraska the only vehicle we could actually afford and find was a u-haul pickup truck uh, and thus Betsy Gibbon and Don Green a photographer drove around Nebraska covering the floods in a u-haul pickup uh plastered with you know st- just covered with signage all over it. So, you know, you just never know uh, where this business is going to take you or what you're going to stumble across.
0: Yeah, so within about from start to completed podcast last week, <laughs> it was what about an hour and 20 minutes I think so. from from concept to <laughs> right. a, a, and again, we didn't tell any of our bosses. It <laughs> just, just kind of did it. <laughs> and so the next day I got an email and well, fortunately, we're still here in the studio. That's right. So See, success. It's all along.
1: You know exactly, exactly. All week, right,
0: week two, and we're bringing more conspirators into our little oh, clan it's here the today. Best.
1: It's the best.
0: Yeah, because we have with us Greg Henderson, who is the editor of Drovers Magazine for Farm Journal, and also Chris Bennett, who, if you've read anything in Farm Journal magazine or on AgWeb, that just grabbed a hold of you and held on tight till you were about a thousand words in. You've read a Chris Bennett story. I mean, right. he is one of the most vivid writers we have on the staff. And, and we brought both of them in because Chris wrote this, this story about black vultures. And then Greg Henderson suddenly fo- found out that there was a black vulture lobby. <laughs> uh, we're going to get the rest of the story about this. So, so let's start with uh, Chris Bennett. Let's bring you in here and, and tell us about this, this black vulture story and how you stumbled across this story.
2: Uh, you bet, John. Uh, John Clinton, it's a privilege to be on here with y'all. Listen, the, the reality is we're talking about a, a somewhat visually repulsive creature. Sure. That knows how to thrive and survive like nobody's business. It, it, it absolutely does a great job in carrying cleanup, no question. Plays a, a valuable role, utilitarian role in nature. But, but.
0: But, and and this is a big, but I think a big surprise for a lot of people that read this story
2: you bet. You bet, John. We're talking about an odd bird. I'm talking about acidic urine, uh, corrosive vomit, projectile vomiting several feet as a defensive mechanism, an affinity and attraction for rubber, millions of dollars in rubber damage a year, wiper blades, boat dock rubber, rubber frames around doors. You name it, they'll peck and tear uh, at it. However, in this context, man... uh The story focused on farms and livestock operations and essentially boiled down. What's going on is that you've got numerous increasing instances of black vultures picking out the weak or the infirm or the young on cattle operations and consuming them. Live and and he, here's the context. Wow.
0: Live, Maybe- yeah, and I, I think that's where a lot of people are surprised. Because most of the time, you think of vultures, you think of, of them, you know, going after carrion and, and not really going after live animals.
2: Right, John. And, and the context is somebody might be listening and say, "How in the world could a three to five pound bird take out a calf or a mama cow?" And and what really happens is that the birds behave in concert. They come in teams and they they tire out the mama. They'll come down and get her to move back and forth, different patches of birds, getting her to go back and forth. And once she's uh, tired out and once she's no longer capable of protecting that calf, they'll move in on the calf and peck that first eye out and basically peck the next eye out and then consume it from behind or partially consume it uh, live. And we're not talking about a day-old calf. Certainly that happens, but we could also be talking about days old, weeks old, even months old in in, in some instances. And, and it's a big and, this also happens to uh, mature cows, mama cows sometimes, or again, infirm cows that simply can't get up, they're sick, or they've given birth, and these birds come in from behind, all the cows can do is basically sling their necks back and forth, and they're eaten out alive from behind, Mm. so it's a horrific ending. And there's a tremendous emotional toll or the grower who has to come out and either find the dead cow or dispatch it, you know, with with a rifle. So it's it's a mess, John.
1: No, how, how did you even stumble across this, Chris? Like, I mean, obviously, I you know, I've been around cattle a lot growing up. I'm not that part of the country in the South. There, how often have people been talking about this? This must be a topic of conversation.
2: Yeah, that's that's a very reasonable question, Clinton. And and what's going on is. Sure, there have been birds, uh, black vultures around in my area for for a long time. But one of the questions uh, in some parts of the country and in places like Mississippi and Arkansas is, are these birds taking up residency? Because there's a suspicion that they are and they're not moving on. And if that's the case, then they obviously have a consistent and constant food source. And, and no one, no one out there, I've never heard mention of anyone claiming that there's an onslaught of vultures on cattle. That's not the point, but Hmm. Fish and Wildlife has confirmed that they believe that the numbers on these birds are increasing. The range is increasing north, and there's also suspicion that they're taking up residency in certain regions, and if those are all correct, then logically you can extrapolate and say, man, we can expect more and more attacks on on cattle, and there's another big and, always another big and that is, is this learned behavior? It appears to be learned behavior. And if it is, again, you can extrapolate and say, man, this is going to carry on. And more and more of these black vultures will figure out how to do this. So it's a, it's, it's a recipe to watch here as we move through the, the next five and certainly 10 years.
0: Yeah. And, oh and Greg Henderson, editor of Drovers, to add insult to a whole lot of injury here, these are protected animals.
3: Yeah, you, you just mentioned, Chris, learn behavior, and I'm going to associate that with, you know, what uh, I guess humans are doing because I'm seeing a, a vulture conservation foundation on Twitter. Um, you know, there's other vulture protection uh, organizations. Um, you know, I, I'm i guessing, I'm thinking, what's next, mosquitoes and termites uh, foundation? <laughs> you know, uh it it's just it just it's incredible to me and and certainly you know uh not advocating you know uh, wanton killing of, of of these birds but when you're losing you know income and and it's they're destroying the chance you have to provide for your family it's just it's really disheartening as chris mentioned uh, you know it's just but the and and of course you want to stay off twitter if you you know if you don't want to see see a lot of this stuff, because it gets crazy. But I was just floored when I found out there was a vulture foundation. I mean, you know, come on.
0: Yeah, and, and in all fairness, we, we do appreciate hearing from, from all sides in some of these issues, but I, I think all of us were a little surprised when we got uh, feedback uh, after Chris's story from a, a pro-vulture group, as you point out, Greg.
3: Yeah, it's just, you know, uh, that was the last thing uh, on on my mind or anybody's mind that, you know, we'd have have people taking up for them. Now, again, I'm I'm you know not advocating against them. It's just you know we're advocating for the farmers and and the plight that they're in. And and you know certainly Chris's story was a big eye opener for me. I had no idea that you know mm. they were attacking living animals. And 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 we know nature can be cruel, but wow, this is just beyond, you know, the cruel that you expect from nature.
0: Yeah, Greg, what were some of those conversations that you and some of the others in the staff were having uh, with these pro-vulture groups?
3: Actually, Sarah Brown uh, was was uh, the one that conversed with them on Twitter, and basically she was just trying to find out more about what, you know, what is their, um, what's their reason for existing? And, and apparently the vulture was, Um, some of these black vultures were near extinction uh, years and years ago, but now the the number is estimated to be near 20 million. Have you seen that, Chris?
2: I sure have, Greg. I believe it was Partners in Flight. Don't quote me on that. I believe they did a study several years ago and came up with 20 million black vultures globally, and maybe 89% of that was projected for the United States. However, again, Fish and Wildlife, they have not put out a concrete estimate, at least that I'm aware of.
1: That's a lot of birds, yeah, guys.
2: So, that's a
3: long ways from extinction.
1: Oh, yeah, uh, 20 million. Yeah. Goodness sakes.
3: Yeah. But the, the point that we haven't talked about here is that if you're a farmer and you have a problem with them you know, attacking your cattle, you can't just go out and shoot them. You've got – Chris knows this better. He reported it, but you have to have a permit – uh, you, would you like to explain that, Chris?
2: Right, Greg, you, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, you can't. Let's just say that you got 20 or 30 that that are suddenly appear on your land. You can't walk out there with a 22 or a 22 mag or a shotgun. You have to go through Fish and Wildlife and get a take permit. And that, even if you get a take permit, and, yeah. and, and I'm I'm told that Fish and Wildlife has been very helpful in submitting these permits. But if you get one, that's for a limited number of kills that lasts a year. And I know in several states, uh, I think it's Tennessee and Kentucky, I say I think because I'm not positive about that, you can go through Farm Bureau by proxy to get that kill permit. And there are all kinds of uh, ways to uh, shield your property. You know, you can hang up an effigy. I suppose, you know, there's the propane cannons and so on. But, hey, you know, talking to the producers on the ground, all of those kind of things work temporarily. They don't work. Long- they don't work long term. And, and the reality here is, and this is just my opinion. I'm not certainly not uh, reflecting this on any organization, but there is a significant amount of shoot, shovel, and shut up going on. And there mm-hmm. always is in these circumstances. I think there were 7,500 permits issued in 2017, and maybe 3,000 or so issued a decade earlier. So the number is going up, wow. and I would assume if the number of permits go, is going up and the number of, of shoot, shovel, and shut up is also going up significantly as well. The farm bill was supposed to flirt with this, and frankly, I don't know the absolute latest, but they were attempting to give producers some means to, build, to deal with these black vultures uh, beyond the traditional uh, take, Permit issued by Fish and Wildlife right now.
0: Well, and and but how many cattle do you see suffer and die in the time you're waiting for that permit to arrive? Right.
1: I mean, how many are you going to lose? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously the frustrations there. And I always think it's interesting, Greg. Whenever you know, we cover a lot of kind of the the predator versus the the farmer type of scenarios because that's the world we live in today. Um, you know, it's not just vultures. It's also, you know, wolves. It's, you know, uh, other... Are we going to go into feral hogs now? Well, you know, there are other issues like feral hogs. And I don't know, is there a feral hog lobby out there? I'm, I'm guessing <laughs> there may be
3: soon. Have
0: you, have you found them, Greg? Yeah.
3: <laughs> I have not found a feral hog lobby, but uh, <laughs> opposed to the vultures, the, the feral hogs have turned into sport And you don't need a permit in most states to hunt them. Again, I'm going to defer to Chris. He's the expert here. But I'm hearing about, uh, you know, people bringing them in and turning them loose in areas so they can have sport hunting, which is just crazy.
0: That is crazy, especially for anybody, again, looking at some of uh, Chris's previous reporting. If you haven't read Hogzilla yet, search for Hogzilla on AgWeb. Just an incredible story of how these things can survive and grow and what a challenge they can be. Oh, absolutely!
1: I I still have nightmares about
0: that uh, story there, Chris.
2: Oh man, ho- ho- Hogzilla was crazy. The whole feral hog scenario in general is just buck wild, and 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 that's an understatement. Of course, most states here in the South, you can uh, they're begging you, you know, to, 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 it's open season on hogs. You run them over with your vehicle if you have to, whatever it takes. Now, I, you know, you get up to uh, Missouri, for example, they have a trapping only policy, at least on public land. They don't allow hunting uh, on most of that ground. But you're talking about a creature that survives like no other I and mean, that adapts on the go. I had my eyes opened and truly opened. A buddy of mine had killed a sow out in some woods, and they, they ended up killing, I think, all the piglets except two. And he hollered at me and said, Man, I'm going to bring you a couple of these piglets right out of the woods. We just got them. And so he brought them over to me, and uh, we took them in, in the shop and let them loose. And they were tiny, like the size of uh, a small puppy. I'm not exaggerating when I said those things got out of the kennel. And within maybe 30 seconds, they were in my lap, nestled under my arms, and it gave me a quick realization of the amount of adaptation that they hold. So they were taken from one extreme environment in the, uh, the depth of woods, taken out of there and put into human territory, and they had already adapted, taken on me as their protector. And it, it that might serve as a cute story, but it ought to serve as a scary one to show you just how well they're able to morph and, and deal with whatever terrain they're put in.
1: I think the question here is, how many did you take home, <laughs> and what did you name them? No, no, that's crazy. What a crazy and, and story! And how was the bacon? Yeah, <laughs> bacon seeds. Oh, my gosh. that That is a wild story. And I know Missouri is dealing with that right now. I was, uh, spent some time with the folks from was- uh, Missouri Farm Bureau in Washington, and that was one of their kind of main points of the year was to start talking about the feral hog issue in the state. So they are starting to make their way further north.
2: Yeah, Clinton, they've got you know, a rift up there in Missouri between landowners and farmers and the uh, MDC, Missouri Department of Conservation, like I said earlier, they they have a policy there, generally speaking, on core land, on NDC land, and it looks like it's heading this way in the Mark Twain where you can't hunt at hogs, period. In other words, you can't shoot in the deer stand, you can't run dogs on them, and they have trapping only going on there. So a lot of the uh, hunters are up in arms, and they claim that the policy being pursued is actually detrimental to control and that they're going to have worse hog problems there later on because you can't trap your way out of this problem. NDC is, is sticking to their story that you can indeed trap your way out of it. Uh, only, only time will tell, but, you know, uh, the stakes are very high because we already know that wild pigs cost the United States economy, uh, let's say, you know, $2 billion, $3 billion a year, somewhere in there, and maybe half of that. Goes directly to agriculture. Wow. So it, the, these are little devils uh, on the ground that produce <laughs> like no other creature. I, I'm, I'm thinking they, you know, it's two litters every fifteen months, and, and 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 I think there's been cases of three litters in three litters in fifteen months. So uh, maybe I'm wrong on that, but it is it is the two. You can't put feet faster. I, I don't think there's any other large mammal in North America. They can put feet faster on the ground than a wild pig. You look down at Texas, Lord, they've got the most in the United States at roughly 3 million. So if they've got 3 million hogs, Jeez. and most wildlife biologists come in and say, look, you've got to have 66 to 70%, some even higher, but you've got to have 66 to 70% control rate just to keep the population where it's at. Oh, well, wow. if you've got 3 million hogs in the state, that means you have to clear out 2 million hogs a year. Just to keep your number at three million, oh
3: so uh,
2: it starts getting a little, starts getting a little wooly <laughs>
3: <laughs> in a hurry. Yeah. Yes, yeah, and the problem, uh, as Chris emphasized, the problem is not just for agriculture, but the damage that they are doing to the ecosystems of the various states, you know, that are not even aligned with agriculture. You know, the the parks and the you know people's homes, people's yards. Just, I mean, they're overrunning in in certain places.
0: Yeah, but but the geography is somewhat limited, so I'm sure that's why uh, you, you don't see the the widespread concern about what's going on with them.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, you know, there's if, if, if a feral hog story stuck in my mind, uh, Jack Mayer in, in South Carolina, he, he may be the absolute guru, go-to guy for wild pig information i think in his career he'd done something like 40,000 necropsies if i'm if i'm wrong about that i'm not wrong by very much and he was the one that national geographic brought in to dig up the old uh, hogzilla from 10 years ago in that kind of a famous documentary that was on tv and 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 i asked jack one time what was the most unusual story feral hog story at least what stuck in his mind he said they, were, they had to cull a hog one year. It was radio collared. And they went in with 12-gauge uh, slug like normal. And he was the one doing the shooting in this instance. And the, the hog moved at the last second wrong. And he didn't hit him quite where he wanted to in the shoulder. And the hog turned on them and ran one of his buddies up a tree and ran off in the woods. Radio collar broke off. And that should have been the end of the story. But a year later, Jack was checking a turkey plot nearby and a hog walked up on this plot, and he shot it. And when he did, when he got up on it, he realized it was the same hog marked hmm. from the year before, and he was excited because he knew we can take this thing in there to the lab and cut it open and find out how it survived. So he said when they when they cut that hog open that you could see the slug trajectory from the year before. It had indeed gone in in his shoulder, and 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 the boar had gone right up through his, the pig's neck you could see the trajectory, and then come out under that lower jaw and then gone up and cleaved the mandible. So it busted the jaw right in half. And and the reason Jack was emphasizing the story was that despite this mammal having its lower jaw busted into, it, according to their records, had gained weight from the last year. In other words, it got shot
0: and its lower jaw
2: busted out and gained in health. So again, once again, (laughs) there's no other creature in North America that you could cleave the lower mandible, yet it could find a way to eat and and gain in health.
0: Wow. Unbelievable. Well, before we're out of time, I want to move on to one other thing. And, Greg, while you're here talking about uh, kind of surprise lobbying groups, (laughs) what... Great old broads for wilderness. What's this about?
3: <laughs> you know, I, it, I was just doing some research, and, and there was a story uh, in Utah. There's a there's a man that's going on trial next week, and he um, he and his his wife. His wife is a a member of this uh, great old broads for wildlife, uh, and that was published in the story. But what they did was they shut a rancher's gate. And, and what the prosecutors are claiming is that they uh, did that in, in order to keep the cows from water, and they were hoping the cows would die so that they wouldn't be on these federal lands, okay? but wow. So, uh, you know, when I see this great old broads for wildlife, I thought, what is that? So you, you Google it, and sure enough, there is a society, um, and it's 30 years old. 30 uh, John, years old? I know, like I, it's 30 years old this year great old broads for wilderness society and they must have some money because they have four employees so hmm. they're getting money uh, you know and i'd never heard of them so uh i, I think just the you know just the same as you know not being aware of the vulture society uh you know i wasn't aware of this uh, great old broads for wildlife society wilderness society so it's kind of a unique name. You would think you would have heard of it before, but uh, anyway, just uh, it's another It's been a learning uh, week for backstory. you, Greg.
2: <laughs> it, it
3: has. <laughs> you know, um, hey. every week... Uh, it seems like Greg,
1: you do you do kind of run across a lot of these groups in in what you write and the things that you research. And I know your commentary on drovers. A lot of times you're you're taking on some of the groups like PETA and HSUS and in kind of starting that conversation from ag's perspective. Is there any are there any lessons that you've learned or ways that we can have a, a mutual conversation? Uh, any f- common ground that you've come across? Any way to have these discussions as an ag industry, um, you know as reporters, our job is to try to cover both sides, but as a as an industry, you know we continue to talk about advocating and having conversations with people that you know we don't agree with. I just keep searching for this little patch of common ground that seems to be hard to find right. in some of these
3: instances, right. This is this is very difficult, and and I, I believe it affects the beef industry more than the other segments of agriculture. Probably for a variety of reasons. Number one, the cowboy is kind of that iconic figure. Uh, but you know, when when you a lot of people think of agriculture, they they may think of corn and soybeans. A lot of them think of cowboys. Okay, um, and and lately, so just since. The first of January. We've had three big anti-cow events. We've had the Green New Deal, which talked about cow flatulence. Which, you know, if you know anything about cows, it's not that's not the end where the bulk of the methane's coming from. Um, (laughs) You know, it's not the south end; it's the north uh, end. That's absolutely right. So, um, and then there was the. the episode with the uh, uh, livestock's long shadow, which is a precursor to the Eat Lancet report, which came out of Europe, and they were uh, suggesting that we uh, stop eating meat to help save the planet. No, you could and you could still so, eat
0: meat, Greg. Come on, you could well, have what the it, quarter ounce a day, day or whatever eat. it was. Yeah. Ounce,
3: an ounce and a quarter, uh, and an egg and a half a week. Okay, is mm-hmm. is the limit? So, <laughs> but I think the the important thing here is that, um, and, and I've been doing some work, and I know Frank Mittlenauer from UC Davis has been on AgriTalk uh, a time or two, but uh, it, it, cows are not killing the planet, as he says. It's, it's not the methane. It's, it's the burning of fossil fuels, and there's a lot of misinformation, and, and it all goes back to what the UN did in 2006 when they said, when that report came out that said, uh, 18% of all uh, greenhouse gas emissions come from livestock, and that was more than transport. Well, that was a, a way overstated, and even uh, Mittnell and I got them to amend their reports and but it was too late. You know, those headlines are still uh, being used today against the livestock industry, yeah. and in fact, the EPA says now that in the United States, uh, greenhouse gas emissions from livestock is only 3.5% of the total. That's, that's a far cry from 18%. So uh, get back to your question, you know, um, there's a lot of noise about cows and, and that they're hurting the environment, and people just don't read below those headlines. And uh, um, it, it's going to be it, – it's emotional – and it's, uh, you know, more than anything, uh, they people are starting to believe headlines and not read further into it.
0: That's true. Indeed. Indeed. All right, well, gentlemen, a, truly a glimpse behind the curtain here. Coach Griffiths has to get to <laughs> Little League, so we need to wrap things up. But before we do, uh, Chris, Ben, I want to get a couple things from you. One, uh, I just got done proofing a, an incredible story that you've done uh, looking at a farm accident. Give us the quick synopsis of that and uh, th- that we'll be looking for on AgWeb here real soon.
2: Hey, 10-4, John. Listen, in the annals of survival history, there is a farming story that, put it bluntly, ranks. And what I mean is that if you look at the great survival stories a oh, lord of the last 100 years. There's a, an account of a gentleman named Samson Parker in South Carolina. He got his arm caught in a corn picker. Corn picker. Uh, and that's just fire. the
0: beginning of the story.
2: Right. And he had to uh, pull out a knife. And it's an incredible story of perseverance and faith. And like I said, it, it ranks up there beside anything.
0: Yeah, and the name Samson certainly fits him. He just incredible strength, <laughs> not only physically but strength of spirit. There. So, all right, Chris. And anything? What else are you working on right now that we may be seeing soon on AgWeb.com? Gentlemen,
2: yeah, just you know, strange stories always interest all of us. And there's a gentleman down in South Mississippi, close to Natchez that is arguably the sharpest and greatest shed hunter. Uh, In the south, maybe in the Midwest, and this gentleman has found, 50, 60, 70, on average, deer sheds a year. And over his 30-year pursuit of sheds, he's got, oh, 1,500, 1,600 total sheds. He's an absolute phenom, very humble gentleman. But uh, if, if you're interested in deer, sheds, deer management, he is your man.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, hey, gentlemen, uh, Chris Bennett, thank you so much for uh, spending some time with us here today. And uh, Greg Henderson, uh, editor of Drovers, thanks both of you.
1: Yeah, it's great, guys. Good stuff. Hey,
2: privilege is mine. Thank, you. Take-
0: thank you. All right. Uh-huh. And if you're interested in reading some of the stories we've mentioned, the Hogzilla uh the uh the black vulture story any of those um and you're listening to this podcast on apple Podcasts or any of those other places go back to agweb.com find this podcast and we'll include links in the description so you can go back and read those stories Clinton, we survived a second week. Think we'll be back here for week three? I'm going to go
1: with a yes on that one. I think. I'm going to uh, go with a
0: no because I'm on vacation, <laughs> so it's all you next week. Hey, buddy.
1: I'm on vacation too. We're going to have to find a fill in.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we both look at producer Ashley. I don't all know. All right. Thanks, Ashley. Uh, yeah. Let's see. All right. Thanks for joining us again this week on the stuff we don't talk about on air.